every other facet of the human dimension you can imagine, maps are a way you can instantly and more easily envision connections that might be concealed otherwise. Welcome to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. I'm Marcella Cavallaro, Esri Manager of National Government Emerging Business, and I'll be your host for today. You just heard author and journalist James Fallows explain an intangible but critical function of maps. Location technology is increasingly being used in cities to make civic digital transformations visible and increase community connections. Here, Esri CMO Mariana Cantor explain how maps bring government and citizen priorities into alignment. Jim, thanks so much for joining us here today. Uh, Mariana, it's my pleasure. Thank you. I want to start with the American Futures Project, mm -hmm. which centered around your travels to small American cities, uh, and you documented life across the continent and the heartland. What was your vision for this effort? So the idea behind this project, which we began back uh, thinking about in the summer of 2013, was that my wife, Deb, and I had spent a lot of our time outside the United States trying to understand the reality of countries like China, where we lived for many years, and Japan, and Southeast Asia, and Africa, by getting away from the big cities and just taking buses, taking trains, taking riverboats, and seeing what it was like in the villages and elsewhere. And because we had been outside the United States during the time of the great financial crash of 2008, 2009, we'd seen all these, seen, heard all these reports about just the hollowing out of the interior of the United States and the way small town life was diverging from larger town life. So we wanted to see what it was like to go to these places in Mississippi and South Carolina and South Dakota and Kansas and Central Valley, California, and take them seriously as real places, not just as scenes for disaster reporting or as props for some kind of political coverage or analysis. So we, we went to these places, we spent a couple of weeks each in probably two dozen cities, and the idea was to give a sort of realities perspective on the interior of the United States, uh, which was informed also by a geographic perspective. Let's talk a little bit about our, you know, cities, and um, our cities are getting smarter, and we hear a lot about the notion of smart cities. From your perspective, what is the actual trend? The smaller the city you visit, the less likely they are to call themselves a smart city because they feel like that would be uppity. You know, New York can say it's a smart city and so can L.A., but if you're in Wichita or if you're in Duluth, that seems presumptuous. But what they do instead very much pride themselves on is having networks of more efficient urban life. You know, there, there's a trend all across the country of people moving back downtown and younger people wanting to have walkable work, walkable manufacturing, locally sourced food. They're recognizing the efficiencies in transportation and living space, just in, in environmental consciousness in, in all sorts. There's a sense of um, mayors in general, and especially in strong mayor cities, pride themselves in being the action people, the people where if there is anything ranging from a pothole to a sewage leak, to a vision for a new bike trail or, or, or school or anything else, they are the people who are held accountable and can make things work. And so they're using smart tools. Uh, we're finding digital tools of, of you know, dashboards and all the rest are, are very widespread. Many small town mayors pride themselves on having apps where people can report, here's a light that's out. You know, the kinds of things that, that were pioneered in New York or Los Angeles or Detroit are percolating very widely across the country. So I think that by humbler names than smart cities, 
mayors and their citizens are priding themselves on using the tools of modern environment, modern connectivity, modern sensing, modern communications to have an improved, um, improved civic life. You also talk about soft infrastructure versus hard infrastructure. Yeah. I wonder sort of the, the connectivity, the ubiquitous connectivity that allows these entrepreneurs and companies to sort of set up shop. Does the soft infrastructure become an issue? Yes. One of the things that, that struck us in a number of, in trying to distinguish cities that looked like they were going on the way up from cities that were struggling is whether there was this culture of civic patriotism and civic responsibility and civic generational passing the torch, things you could think of as, as soft um, infrastructure. Uh, a lot of my reporting life I've spent in countries having trouble in various parts of Africa and, and some parts of Southeast Asia when they were in sort of pre-takeoff stage. And you notice it's not so much that those places lack resources as they lack any culture of trust or any way of encouraging people to invest in the long run or allowing them to think that if they take a risk, they can survive it. You know, even if things don't go well, they'll have a chance for future possibilities. And in many cities we visited, there were three things that struck me as part of this civic infrastructure. One is early in our visit almost any place, we'd ask the usual suspects, newspaper editor, principal of the schools, mayor, et cetera, we'd ask them who makes things go around here. And it was the very fact of having an answer to that question that mattered. It didn't matter who the answer was. It mattered that there was an answer and somebody was seen as responsible for for making things happen. That was one marker of this kind of soft infrastructure. Another was a sense of generational um, responsibility. I'm thinking now of, of Duluth, Minnesota. A one, back in the 1880s, 1890s, that was sort of the that was the Seattle or Palo Alto of those days. That was where all different kinds of wealth were coming together of timber and grain and, and, and iron ore. And so if you said Duluth, you know, you thought, wow, that's that really fancy. And then it went through a very, very long decline. But now the people in their 50s and 60s who've tried to rebuild the city, they think of themselves as consciously bringing in people in their 20s and 30s and saying, let's help you get your business going. And so there's, there's now a very strong recreational industry in Duluth, uh, in addition to aerospace and, and medical technology, made by, by people who, want, for one way or another, saw the territory, they liked it, and they thought, we'll try to have a snowboard industry, a, a recreational clothes, a fashion industry here in Duluth. And the people of their parents' generation helped them get loans, et cetera. There was one other soft infrastructure I thought of uh, very distinctly in uh, Columbus, Ohio, where their motto is they are just the right size. They say they are big enough to do almost anything, but small enough to get anything done. And they say that you know cities that are much smaller, they say, might not have all the offerings they do. Cities that are much bigger, you can kind of get lost in, in the mix. And a consciousness of being the right size is something that is, is striking a lot of cities. People thinking, yes, it's a nice place to be, but also it's a manageable scale that we can get things done. And you don't find that so much in places that are just huge where people can feel crushed. So it's that, that those were all parts of the soft infrastructure we found. Can you talk about the intersection of technology, business, and government um, and how it's changing over time, shaping our lives today mm -hmm. and going forward? So I mentioned my understanding of American political history. If 
is we've always had troubles. Worst of all, in the Civil War, so it's a matter of containing the troubles. My understanding of American technological and business history is that the government has always played a major role that people pretend is not there. Sort of every major breakthrough in American technology from, from mass production back in the early 1800s to the railroads in the late 1800s to aerospace and biotech and sensing and mapping and, and university research, in all of these, the federal government played a leading investment role, which anybody in those industries knows and most of the rest of the public pretends never happened. You know, that, that, that somehow these things magically uh, came to the United States. And so I think that, that a challenge for the United States is to have the long-term investment in technologies of the future, space and energy and communications and whatever else you think is the technology of the next generation, have the investment for that that can come in the long-term patient way that only a non-VC funded uh, entity can do over a period of decades, not just you know three or four years, finding a way to make that a viable thing uh, within our political structure. Uh, can we talk a little bit about technology and what you think the role of data and analytics play in um, sort of the success of our country, success of our business, success of our society? Well, certainly it's a cliche. The United States has been a tech, big technology uh, power. And I think it's a cliche that's true and, also, and we, I hope, remains true. I think that in, in what's seen as the most um, troubled areas of public life now, including governance, there is an opportunity for technology to play a role there because the anti-government impulse in America now is driven by the idea the government is old-fashioned, it's out of touch, it's, it's inefficient, it's backward, it's antediluvian, it's anything you want to say that, that, that is critical. And the difficulties in rolling out the health care plan under President Obama, I think, illustrate that. You say, oh, of course the government runs out a health care plan, you know, no wonder it, it got, runs into trouble, and you're bringing people from Google and elsewhere to try to, to, to get it fixed up. But as you well know, in many areas, public institutions are actually the most advanced in, in, in technological means. As city governments become more visible and effective in their dashboards for streetlight repair and pothole repair and reporting on schoolrooms and all the rest, I think that that then has a reassuring effect of technology being involved very intimately in how people are living their lives at a level that matters to them or having responses to their congressional representatives or their senators or their, their uh, cabinet departments. So ways as public and private institutions can use technology to make more visible their modernity and their responsiveness, I think that can be part of a virtuous cycle. And certainly help uh, increase trust yes, in the yes. government. Um, you bring up geography. I know that you uh, uh, use geography in your reporting, mm. so I would like to talk about how it's informed your reporting. I think that the tools of mapping in general and being able to see connections are tremendously valuable in the two different phases of the reporting process, that all of the process of explaining the world falls into two halves. One is finding out the other is telling. 
the magazine I work for, The Atlantic, and the broadcast work I've done on public radio and, and, and for, for public TV, it's all for a relatively high-end audience in the United States and around the world. And what that audience is generally looking for is a new way of understanding how things fit together. These are people who have their own experience of the world. They're usually experts in one, one field or another, and they, they're broadly informed. And so the value you can add to them is saying things fit together in a way you didn't know. So finding that out yourself mainly in, is a process of trying to integrate different fields of knowledge. And the Geography is a tremendously powerful integrative tool. Things are where they are for reasons. Usually people move to them and move out of them and move around them for different reasons. There are uh, environmental forces on different parts of the world. There are economic ebbs and flows. There are things you can see spatially from an airplane or from a map. And so as it has become easier and easier to layer these things just on maps and, and on, on online maps especially, then from the finding out part of the process, that's a big plus, then in the telling part of the process, it is yet another tool. I've told my friends in the mapping world that I think this is the ramping up, accelerating uh, stage where people are more and more rapidly adopting uh, geographic tools to tell their stories. I think we're at the earlier rather than more mature part of that stage in my business for journalism. Because I think five years from now, 10 years from now, it will be easier to do something that's not easy enough now, which is to say, I've just seen this city, this industry, this refugee group or whatever, and I'd like quickly to make a map to show all these things together. That still is a little bit too complicated compared to both what it will be in five years and what what I would hope it would be to be able to just kind of do, do that quickly. I, I use this analogy. Ten years ago, nobody writing a web post could easily put in a video. It was just too complex. Now anybody can do it in 10 seconds, you know, for better and for worse. And I think that the democratization and sort of big dataization of mapping tools will mean five years from now the explaining part of the the uh, the narrative and journalistic process will become easier too. So that's why I wish all of my mapping friends Godspeed in their efforts. Jim, you mentioned earlier that maps help you see connections. Could you talk more about that? Yes, I'll extrapolate from one's own experience as a human being. Moving through the world, each of us experiences things in the given place we happen to be. And so in the place we happen to be, we have the weather and we have the crime rate and we have the economic trend and we see whatever is uh, the state of the city around us and the health effects and all of that. And so, so we in our own role, just in existing on earth, we have the intersection of all these different forces that matter in the point, place and time that we exist in. But when we move beyond our own experiences to try to understand the situation of our communities, our regions, our country and our world, I find that the map is an extension of that personal awareness because you can, especially with new technology, you can say, let's look at this part of the country and see what's the change in the economic reality here, what industries are, are rising, which ones are falling. For example, if you were in Appalachia, as I've been for a while, and where it said Appalachia instead of Appalachia, uh, you can say, let's look at the trend in coal jobs. You can see they've been going up and down and the places that have developed new industries have thrived, the ones that haven't, they just had to move someplace else. You can see how has the change in 
weather and in climate, how has affected the kinds of crops that are viable here? How have the changes in high-speed connectivity favored or disfavored certain regions here? How has the spread of community colleges made new possibilities here? How have changes in airline routing connected or isolated communities? How have political shifts given us different sorts of, of representation? And so if the mark of sophistication in understanding the world is being able to integrate, of holding various views in mind at the same time of, of history and of economics and of technology and of ethnography and of change for good and ill and for every other facet of the human dimension you can imagine, maps increasingly are, are a proxy for that. And you can, you can find ways to have a visual picture to complement the intellectual understanding you, you may have. And the cliche of pictures being worth a thousand words, it's not always true. I say as a guy who's paid by the word rather than by the picture, but it can be powerful. And, and I find my own experience in flying over the country as a pilot makes connections evident to me in a way that wouldn't be just by reading about them. And I think that maps are a proxy for that. It's a way you can instantly and more easily envision connections that might be concealed otherwise. Thank you so much for your time, Jim. Thank you, Mariam. Thanks for listening to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. And thanks to James Fallows for explaining how maps increase the common good and make more interactive communities. To learn more, download our ebook, Making Sense of Digital Transformation, at esri.com forward slash wear. To keep current with new interviews, visit our podcast page at esri.com forward slash podcast.